Kate, 3650, Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Thursday, October 22nd, Delayed Onset Muscle Soreness and Muscle Adaptation. When we finished last time, we were talking about this notion of soreness, and that's what we feel, okay, when we do some kind of activity. Um, what's really happening is some sort of injury, if you will, to the muscle, okay? Some people refer to it as muscle damage, uh, muscle injury. It's apparent that it is probably part of a normal stimulus and repair and adaptation process that helps muscle grow, if you will, uh, or adapt to certain stimuli. Now, remember that there's two sort of components of the response. Okay, there is an immediate response. First of all, what kinds of activities is it that we do that causes this injury or makes us sore? Usually the ones that are more eccentrically based, okay, negatives in weightlifting, okay, running downhill, those sorts of things. Uh, it can also be some kind of regular activity. This is kind of one of the interesting things about this phenomenon is that it can be some sort of regular activity. It's just you're not used to doing it for a while. Okay. For example, um, you all of a sudden you know you've got to do some yard work, so you go out in the yard and you do a bunch of heavy yard work where you're bending over and stooping and pulling weeds and that kind of stuff. You wake up the next morning and your lower back and your hamstrings are sore because it's some activity that that you're not quite used to doing. Um, can trained athletes get sore? Even if it's an activity that you're used to, say you're used to running and you're a long distance runner. If you then take that up to something like running a marathon, uh, and particularly at a competitive pace, then you wake up the next morning or two days later and you're sore. Okay? So it's kind of interesting about this phenomenon. It could be some kind of unique novel activity. It could be some kind of activity that you've done before but you haven't done for a while. Or it could be some activity you're used to doing but you take it to some different level. And that's usually, uh, you can also get sore or cause this injury from low intensity, long duration activities like long distance running, but you can also have this occur with high intensity, short duration activities like weightlifting. Okay? So lots of different ways we can cause this sort of insult or injury to the muscle. Now, the response happens in two uh, major components. This immediate response is some kind of mechanical disruption of the muscle cell. Okay? Those myofibrils, the actins and the myosins, can get disrupted. You know, you get this, what's called the Z-line streaming, where normally we have this nice regulated pattern or organization of these myofibrils, and they can be disrupted. Uh, different organelles, like mitochondria, or the sarcoplasmic reticulum, can be disrupted. The muscle cell membrane can be disrupted. And so when that happens, stuff that's normally found inside the muscle cell can leak out, like creatine kinase, other enzymes like LDH, other things like hydroxyproline, etc. Okay? Um, okay, so that's an immediate response. One of the other immediate responses is there is a loss, uh, to some degree, of the ability of that muscle to produce force. Okay? And this is not just from the fatigue of the activity, it's an inability of that muscle to produce force. Okay? Now, um, 
And so we went through some of these slides showing some of the, the actual mechanical uh, damage, the disruption, the um, areas in here where the, the Z lines are, you know, the little sarcomeres are messed up. Now, there is a delayed response, and this is the response that occurs over the next 24 hours to three, four, five days, okay? And if you think about the pattern of response of soreness, because that's what you're aware of, you do the activity, the next morning you wake up, you're sore, the next morning you wake up, you're sore, and then by day three, four, five, the soreness starts to go away, and usually by four, five, six days, it's gone, right? Okay. You have a similar response, for example, with creatine kinase in the blood, because you can measure some CK in the blood immediately after, it rises over the next couple of days and peaks, and then by day four, five, six, the creatine kinase that was in the blood has now gone back down to normal. Okay? So this is a pattern of response over anywhere from 24 hours to three, four, five days. All right, so what happens is <coughs> 24 hours or 48 hours after the injury, your ability to produce force by that muscle actually gets worse. Even though the muscle has rested for a day, the ability uh, for it to produce force gets worse. And then over the next several days, uh, or in some cases weeks, may uh, then slowly returns. There is this inflammatory response that I talked about last time, where because of the injury to the tissues, your, your body's immune system responds and sends white blood cells to the site of injury. Okay? These leukocytes, or white blood cells, turn into macrophages. Okay? These are specialized cells that essentially chew up any damaged material. Okay? So, where you, have, where you have damaged muscle cell material right here, these macrophages come in, uh, and here, here, these dark spots right here, these are macrophages. They come in and literally sort of digest the damaged muscle tissue. So what that does is over the next couple of days then, it makes the, uh, the appearance of the damage, it makes it look worse because there's more muscle myofibril material missing. Okay? So it makes it look worse. We also know that with this soreness, comes some stiffness, lack of range of motion, okay? And along with that is edema, which means what? Swelling. Swelling, okay? With, with these white blood cells, these macrophages in the cells, that pulls water in with it, and you get some edema or swelling, okay? Uh, then again, you see this increase in creatine kinase in the blood. Uh, you've got this pain soreness, and it's kind of interesting, this, this um, soreness, because usually if you just stand there or sit there and don't do anything, it doesn't hurt. But if you push on it or you get the muscle to move, then you can feel that soreness or pain, okay? Um, all right. Here's, here, over here we've got time. So what's been done in this case is um, this is this was a study done with humans where they've done some activity to injure their quadricep and they've looked at the ability to be able to produce force okay 
And so here's before, here's immediately post, day two, so that's 48 hours later, day four, day seven, okay? So here's how much force they could produce with their quadriceps, with the knee extension. We, uh, they did the eccentric exercise, and the, their ability to pr produce force dropped by about 10%. Okay? And then they rested two days. So this is not an issue of fatigue. They're, they're completely rested, but the force that they were able to generate with their quads was only 60% of what it was on the first day. Okay, so an almost 40% loss of ability to produce force. So this is you know, potentially a big problem for athletes if you're doing workouts that make you really sore, then the quality of your training over the next few days is gonna be diminished. Now, it starts to come back, but in this case, by day six or so, it's still down to here, and it's not until about a week later that the ability to produce force is back up to somewhere approximating what they started with, okay? So this is not only an issue of pain and soreness and discomfort, it's an issue of the performance of the muscle. Okay, so here are these macrophages. Here's a damaged fiber right here. And he, all these little black dots are, are macrophages that are in there chewing up the, the damaged muscle. Okay? Um, now, within muscles and within muscle cells, you have satellite cells. Okay, these are undifferentiated cells that when you have this kind of stimulus that has caused this damage, once this is cleared out of there, these satellite cells are stimulated to start developing into new muscle fibers or new muscle cells. Okay, And so then once they develop and are able to fill in where this muscle cell has been damaged and is now gone, you are able to then uh, provoke a, uh, an adaptation to this injury process. And then this is in cross-section, so these are muscle cells or muscle fibers coming out at you this way, like this. And you can see these are damaged, and you can see all these macrophages surrounding these fibers here that are busily chewing them up. <coughs> okay, since this is such a common phenomenon, there's been a lot of work done to try to figure out if we can either prevent it or if we can make it less worse, okay? Lot, and this is one of those things you can go into the literature and type in delayed onset muscle soreness or exercise and muscle damage, and you'll come up with thousands and thousands and thousands of hits on, on PubMed, lots of research studies. Uh, people have studied uh, warming up versus not warming up. Does that help the soreness? People have studied stretching versus not stretching before exercise, after exercise. Does that help you be less sore? People have tried massage. Okay, does that help? Ice, you know, make the muscle cool. Heat, <laughs> warm it up. Um, people have tried exercising, being physically active versus just completely resting. Um, so have tried those manipulations. This is one of those topics that if you look in the literature, you can find individual studies that may say icing is good for you or massage is good for you and makes you less sore over the, the successive couple of days. But I can tell you all of the things on this, in this column right here, there's not good substantial evidence to suggest that any of these interventions help prevent soreness or if you do the activity and you're already sore, help the soreness be either less 
or resolve quicker. Okay? So, now, this isn't to say if, you know, a massage feels good. So if massage feels good to you, you know, or, or if after you've run a marathon and your legs are really sore and you would rather go out and do an easy jog for a couple of miles as opposed to just resting, that's fine. It's not going to do any more damage, but it's just not necessarily going to help. Okay? So, now, a couple of things that have shown some promise, if you will, uh, NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Most common one we use is, is ibuprofen, like Advil, you know, etc. Um, because of the inflammation response that goes along with this injury, having these anti-inflammatory drugs seems to help to some degree. Okay? It won't prevent people completely from getting sore, but it helps attenuate the soreness and it seems to help the soreness um, resolve more quickly. All right, but here's the thing. Most of the studies show with you know, ibuprofen or w whatever type of uh, NSAID drug is you have to start using it prophylactically before you do the activity. That is, you've got to start using it two or three days beforehand for it to be effective. Okay? You can't wait until you've done this activity and say, ooh, boy, I bet that I'm going to be sore tomorrow and start loading up on the Advil. It's probably not going to help. Okay? So NSAIDs, if you use it, start in a couple of days in advance. Now, this last one, adaptation. <coughs> if we go back to this study, this study actually had an... Uh, okay. So what they did is they did this uh, activity with this study to, to uh, injure the person's quads, make them sore. And what we saw is a big decline in force. What they did then was waited two weeks and came back and had them do the exact same activity again. Okay, this is an activity that made them sore and caused their force to drop by almost 40%. After a two-week period of time, when they came back and did the exact same task, look what happened with their loss in force. Very small. In fact, it's non-statistically significant. Okay? So that tells us, this is one of those studies that tells us there is a substantial and rapid adaptation to injury-producing activity or exercise. Okay? Now, other studies, in this case, they waited two weeks before doing that same task again. Other studies have shown that you can, some, in, in one instance, a study has shown you can wait up to about six weeks and do the same task again, and the person doesn't get sore or doesn't see this loss in force. So there's some protective window, if you will, that you can do a task that makes you sore, and then there's some period of time that if you do it again, your body has adapted to it. Okay? There are other studies showing that if you do the same soreness-inducing exercise every day, day after day after day, the soreness doesn't get any worse. So, you know, if you do some kind of task and it makes you, you know, soar up to, you know, nine on a ten-point scale, if you do that same task again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, the soreness doesn't go up to nine and a half and ten, etc. The soreness peaks and then drops just like it would if you hadn't done anything, okay? So the good thing is we know if we do this type of activity, it's not likely to make it worse if you, if you keep doing it. All right, so...
How's, how might this be used practically? I'll give you an example. When I, my first faculty job was at uh, Fresno State, and um, they have a race out in the Sierra Nevada mountains called the Western States 100. Uh, this is a, a mountain trail running race that starts up in uh, near Squaw Valley, up in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and it runs up and over the Sierra Nevada mountains and down to kind of near, uh, near Sacramento. It is a hundred miles and there's something like a total of 20,000 feet of elevation change as, you know, up and down as, as you go across this race. So it's an ultra-endurance event, obviously. Um, there was a, uh, somebody at Fresno State that was going to run this race. And they had real obvious concerns about having just crippling soreness that would occur because of all the downhill running. So came to me, we were talking about what to do about it, because we'd done some muscle soreness studies and, and that sort of thing. So what I recommended was uh, in about the month beforehand, go up in the Sierra Nevada mountains up above Fresno and do a nice long run that included you know, a fair amount of downhill running. It would make them a little bit sore. Did you guys have a question about something? No? Okay. Um, it would make them a little bit sore but then they would have this adaptation period where then when they eventually went and did the race that they wouldn't have this kind of crippling soreness or, or loss of ability to produce force. Okay? It's a great idea as it turns out the uh, uh, lady got a stress fracture in her foot and, and never didn't do the, didn't do the 100 mile race anyway. So, so good in theory anyway. Okay, so... So essentially two things, if you're looking at you know, potentially soreness-inducing, injury-inducing exercise or activity, um, NSAIDs and uh, do some sort of adaptation beforehand. Okay, now, now what's, the, what's the mechanism that's, that's uh, in play here? What's going on that's causing this to happen? Um, the two on this page are things that have been proposed that you can mark across there that these are not... These are not valid mechanisms, okay? Uh, one that you will read about frequently is that there's this little, there's this um, kind of uh, vicious cycle of muscle spasm that occurs. That there's an injury, it sends a signal back to the central nervous system that sends a signal back to the muscle that has it contract, that it's sort of like a muscle spasm, and the continued spasming causes the injury. Um, this is one of those examples where one particular researcher and his lab was able to do two, three, four, five studies all showing something that nobody else has been able to replicate. Okay? So, um, you know, it's maybe something unique about their techniques or something like that, uh, but it's a mechanism that's gotten proposed in some attention, but nobody else has been able to replicate it, so it's been pretty much discounted. This one you hear and still hear all the time that lactic acid causes the muscle soreness, okay? Well, here's the thing. The type of activity that causes the most soreness, high-intensity, eccentric activity, like the example I showed you where the technicians lift the weight, the person takes it and lowers it down, does the negative part of it, 
is very high intensity and, and fairly short period of time. So the major energy system you're using is creatine phosphate. That kind of activity actually produces very little lactate, very little acid, and yet results in the most damage and the most soreness. Okay? You can also get sore, uh, injury and damage with low intensity, long duration activity like running a marathon where very little lactate is produced or accumulated. Okay, so try to dispel the myth that it's lactic acid that is a mechanism or, or causes this muscle injury or muscle soreness. Now, what, what, what is likely going on? All right, the first thing is that there, there is mechanical damage. And we think it's worse with eccentric because it's forced lengthening. Okay? The muscle cell is producing force, but it is being forcibly pulled apart, and so that causes some kind of actual mechanical breakage in those myofibrils. Um, also, when you're doing the negatives, um, because you're not having to produce the force, to, say, to lift this weight up against gravity to overcome the acceleration due to gravity, the, the body actually um, will recruit fewer motor units. So fewer motor units, fewer muscle cells are producing the force to resist this external force. And so that's more tension on each individual muscle fiber and potentially more injury. Okay, and we talked about this uh, uh, inflammatory response. Calcium-mediated proteases. Fancy term for proteases are enzymes that break down proteins. Okay, so these are enzymes that break down proteins. And what happens is there are some of these enzymes that are activated in the presence of calcium. Well, if you've done injury to this muscle cell and you've disrupted the sarcoplasmic reticulum, it can't do its job and hold the calcium in as well. So this calcium, some of this calcium is sort of floating around in the cell and that activates some of these enzymes and then those enzymes go and chew up some of the muscle tissue. Okay? <coughs> now, what explains the force that's being lost? Okay, and the one example we saw where somebody, you know, these subjects lost almost 40% of their ability to produce force. <coughs> Clearly, if we've actually damaged muscle tissue, there's a loss of muscle tissue that can produce force. Okay? But if we look at, and I think I mentioned this last time, you know, if you look at that, this isn't 40% of, of all of this muscle tissue. So there's a disconnect between how much or what percentage of muscle tissue is damaged and what percentage of force is lost. We lose a lot more force than you would guess by how many muscle fibers are damaged. And so there's something else going on. Um, this actually is the, the area of interest of research that Dr. Ingalls does. Some of you, you know, when you go to lab have maybe, you know, seen him back there in the, in the lab with all of his uh, gadgets in, in there. And he's got the devices in there to do a lot of the things that we've been talking about, where you can take muscle or muscle cells, stimulate them to produce force, uh, and his interest really is in looking at injured muscle and what's going on in, in 
uh, its inability to produce force. Um, he, as well as a lot of other people, think even though there's maybe 5% or 20% of the actual muscle tissue that's injured, you know, we can lose 40 or 50% of the ability to lose force. And so what he actually studies <clears throat> is that action potential and the ability of the action potential to come down that T-tubule, um, stimulate the sarcoplasmic reticulum to release calcium because there's a lot more detailed steps that we haven't covered in here um, and it's referred to as excitation, contraction, uncoupling. That it's the, the signal's getting down into the T-tubule, but somehow the signal isn't getting all the way to, the, uh, to cause the result of calcium release and force production. So somewhere in that gap, there are some steps that are disconnected. Okay? Um, you'll probably be hearing a lot more about that when you take the neuromuscular class. Because of the calcium, calcium being involved with this, um, th this is just another, th this is kind of an interesting technique that I thought. It's a, it uses a, um, um, a radio-labeled substance called technetium, technetium-99. Um, it's typically used for bone scans, but when injected into a, in a certain concentration, it'll circulate around the body and it will aggregate where there's a lot of calcium. Uh, this is a result of a, of a um, uh, person who ran, who did run the Western States 100 and had this technetium injected and the scan done and you can see all in this area where his quads are uh, is all dark which indicates accumulation of this technetium which is probably you know obviously where he's really sore in his quads from all the uphill and downhill running. And then this I think was the scan that was done uh, can't read that's a bad scan but this is done probably a, a, a week to two weeks or three weeks later where this is all resolved and that's at the point where that soreness and injury has been been resolved okay questions about muscle injury muscle soreness muscle damage article yeah yeah article number two is due tomorrow right yeah Okay. Um, yeah, I don't really have time to get going on the next one. The next one we're going to do is uh, muscle adaptation. Okay, so um, look, at, look at your muscle adaptation. We'll do that on Tuesday. And that's the hypertrophy, um, hyperplasia idea. How does muscle get stronger, get bigger? Okay.